This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, I welcome back fan favorite James Kukios to talk about the Morrison and Forrester International Anti-Corruption Report for the month of March 2020. It's a fascinating exploration of several topics highlighted by the lawyers at Morrison and Forrester. The audio in this podcast is below our usual standard, so I apologize for that in advance. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode with James Kukios, fellow Wolverine and uh, Morrison Forrester partner. And we're here today to talk about the firm's always great uh, in- international anti-corruption newsletter. Today, it's the March newsletter. So first of all, James, uh, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. Thanks for having me, Tom. Always a pleasure. James, in the March newsletter, you let off, I think, with a story, uh, or at least it was in uh, the newsletter, that I think ha- potentially has uh, the possibility to be one of the biggest uh, anti-corruption, uh, money laundering, and associated uh, financial crimes story, um, perhaps ever, but uh, certainly uh, for uh, the, the, this, where we are at this point in time, and that deals with um, the, for, the daughter of the former uh, premier of Portugal, uh, Isabel dos Santos, and Portugal froze her assets um, a little bit of background. She is Africa's richest woman. She is a billionaire. Uh, as I said, the daughter of the former uh, uh, premier or president. She was the uh, president of Sonegal. My favorite story of Isabel dos Santos was when asked, is it true that you could get the president of the central bank uh, on uh, his cell phone? Her question was, in which country? Um, <laughs> Uh, I, uh, I guess I really wanted to explore what your thoughts might be, how the Department of Justice would see something like this. Obviously, lots of American companies involved, but lots of other countries and companies. And how would you think through something potentially uh, worldwide in scope? This does have the potential to be very, very widespread, as you mentioned, Tom. The um, As you mentioned, Isabel Dos Santos very wealthy woman, a lot of different business interests um, throughout the world, a lot of properties owned throughout the world. Um, and I'm sure a lot of them are completely legitimate, not state-owned, no issues. But the allegations are that at least some of her dealings were illegal or corrupt. And so it's important, I think, for companies that did business with a, a Isabel Dos Santos-related company to maybe take a look to make sure that they were on the right end of the ledger when it comes to that. But given the widespread wealth that she has, the many different businesses, um, the even just if you look at Sonengal, obviously that's a state oil company where a lot of different uh, companies from around the world will have done investments um, or done business with Sonengal. So there's a lot of potential here. Um, so far, it, uh, a lot of it's been... Um, confined to Portugal. Um, Obviously, as a former colony of Portugal, there's a lot of relationships between Angola and Portugal. And so this particular 
story that we covered in March of 2020 was a Portuguese judge who ordered the seizure of her assets in Portugal. Um, so, so far, we're seeing a lot of the story being in Angola and Portugal, but this is a story that has the potential over the next several months to become much bigger. James, we often talk on this podcast about when some information comes out that uh, companies, competitors or companies in the same industry or uh, who have had this particular uh, someone as a customer might want to scrub their operations. But I was wondering if you might uh, give us a few words about really what does that mean? Does that mean a full forensic uh, internal FCPA investigation? Does that mean uh, something with a lighter touch? If you were uh, being called by a company that had done business with uh, any of the parties we just named, what would you advise them to do uh, at this point? I'd start with a risk-based approach. As I said, not everything that Isabel Dos Santos did is obviously going to be corrupt. A lot of her her business is going to be legitimate, and a lot of her business is not necessarily going to be related to state contracts or state property. And so I think the first thing to do would be, number one, assess, did we do business with a Dos Santos-related company? Number two, what is the risk profile of those transactions? Uh, were they after she was out of office? Was there any government contract involved? Um, was there any potential uh, tie to a state entity? And then, depending on how that goes, do a risk-based analysis, do a deeper dive perhaps into the riskier uh, transactions while maybe doing a lighter touch on the less risky transactions. And then, of course, if you do find something, uh, a more thorough internal investigation might be called for. Uh James, uh, our second story uh, is the Israeli pharmaceutical company Teva, who had a, uh, what we used to call a large FCPA enforcement action uh, several years ago, but they had a monitor uh, put in place, and the enforcement action ended. The DPA was concluded, and I really wanted to ask you, use that as a, as a way to uh, open an exploration of what does the department look at to either uh, conclude a monitorship or to conclude a DPA? What's the type of a review and how closely would uh, uh, someone uh, at the department who's handling an enforcement action work with a company to get them through the post signing of the DPA all the way through it? Sure. So Teva, you said large, it still is the largest pharmaceutical case, uh, at least by penalty to the U.S. So it is It is still fairly large um, in, in the grand scheme of things. Um, you know, Teva had a monitor. Um, and so in a case like this, DOJ is going to obviously pay a lot of attention to the monitor reports uh, and, and talk to the monitor on occasion as well to get a good assessment of how Teva is doing or a company like Teva is doing in terms of is it um, has it remediated its compliance program? Uh, is it going forward in the way expected by DOJ and the monitor? Is it accepting the recommendations? If there were any issues that popped up, were they serious or not? Did um, did the company address them properly? Um, was DOJ satisfied that it wasn't a, a serious enough or a recent enough issue to breach the, the DPA as well? So essentially what happened is throughout the three-year process, the monitor would file reports. There'd be a regular dialogue with the monitor, and there'd be a lot of close contact and close monitoring of what's going on at the company. And then, as I mentioned, if any issues came up, they'd deal with those along the way. And then at the end of the process, the monitor would, as they did here, 
um, submit a report to DOJ certifying that the company has followed the DPA obligations. Um, and so that's number one. Uh, also, DOJ would look to make sure that Teva followed a company like Teva and here Teva followed the other requirements of the DPA. So among the other obligations that Teva had under the DPA here was it had to cooperate with the government's investigation. It had to implement an enhanced compliance program. And then, of course, it had to work with a monitor. So DOJ would also look at that. And then when that's all done, after the monitor signs off and certifies that Teva's compliance program, including its policies and procedures, is reasonably designed and implemented to prevent and detect violations of the anti-corruption laws, that's what it says in the DPA, uh, Teva's CEO and CFO also had to personally certify to the government that Teva had met its disclosure obligations pursuant to paragraph six of the DPA, meaning if there were additional issues that popped up, um, they disclosed all of those to the government as well. Once that's all done, six months later, DOJ will um, file a motion to dismiss right here. And incidentally, Tom, it's interesting, just with all the Michael Flynn stuff going on, uh, the same rule that DOJ used to dismiss the uh, Michael Flynn charges, the same rule they used to dismiss a DPA and an information filed in an FCPA case. A little less fanfare, maybe, in a FCPA case than the Michael Flynn case, but it is the same procedural mechanism. Hmm. Well, I'll have to say, I admit I did not know that. <laughs> uh, inside baseball on uh, federal uh, civil or criminal procedure. Um, James, um, the COVID-19 era is uh, uh, certainly uh, forefront of all of our minds. Uh, in March, a lot of things shut down, government shut down, many businesses moved to virtual. Uh, I think you you did as well. Um, I certainly have, have done that. We thought we were going to reopen in June. Uh, now here in Texas, our cases have spiked and the governor's actually mandated face masks in public. Um, but I was wondering kind of what is the DOJ communicating to us about uh, what they expect from compliance professionals, what they expect from compliance programs, and how they are going to look at uh, current uh, investigations and enforcement, uh, I guess, really through Q2, Q3, and Q4 of uh, 2020. DOJ's message has been very consistent. They're still open for business. They may be working from alternate locations, maybe their homes, um, but they're still open for business and they're still pursuing FCPA investigations and all others. And I have to say, from my own personal experience, that does appear to be the case. The work may have shifted a little bit. They may be prioritizing certain things over others, but they're certainly working very hard. And what do I mean by that? Uh, in some cases, I've heard anecdotally and experienced myself, some face-to-face -face interviews obviously have been canceled because there's A, no travel, and B, restrictions on face-to-face -face interviews. If there has been a very important interview that they need to do, um, they can and have used WebEx. So it's not like all interviews are, are canceled. Um, there are still some going on. But what we've seen a lot of is that the prosecutors have focused uh, or shifted to things that they can do from their desk. So there's been a big push for DOJ um, to send subpoenas out, document requests out, um, make sure the companies comply with those requests and subpoenas, because that's obviously one thing they can do while they're sitting at home at their desks. They can 
they can do the desk review of all those documents, really make a lot of good progress in their investigations. And then when this does end, be prepared to go out and do those interviews and do the things that they need, that they couldn't do before. So they're making great progress. It just may be that they're focusing on certain parts of their cases instead. And what that means if you're a compliance professional or a, a company, it means that DOJ is still on the lookout for violations and missteps. And even if they're not going to knock on your door now, they're preparing themselves to do that when the COVID crisis ends. So it's very important that companies uh, and, and compliance professionals continue to be alert, uh, comp- continue to spend resources and, and, and devote those resources to compliance programs, and also to continue to do uh, internal investigations to the extent possible, because DOJ is going to expect companies to continue to self-report or cooperate and provide the kind of evidence that they would expect, even in good times. So the consistent message from DOJ, in summary, is we're still open for business, and my own personal experience is, indeed, they are still open for business. James, one of the things that I've been trying to uh, get out as a message in uh, my blogs and my podcasts are that uh, if you have to do, first of all, your risks have changed. So you need to assess your risk in the era of COVID-19 and economic dislocation, number one. But number two, if you make any changes, document those changes. Document a business justification. Document your risk analysis. Because two, three, five years from now, not when a regulator comes knocking, but if you are actually under investigation, if you don't have documentation of the change you made, uh, people are not going to say, well, that was just Q2 2020 and everything was haywire. That, um, And I go back to the 2012 FCPA guidance that uh, the thought that a well-thought-out reasoned compliance program is what the DOJ is looking for. Uh, would you find that to be a fair assessment or am I perhaps a little bit off the boat? No, I think it's a great assessment. I mean, one one would hope that DOJ and SEC also would be fairly reasonable that what happened in Q2 of 2020 might have been an aberration. Um, we're all working under very extreme circumstances here, including the department and the commission. So hopefully there'll be some understanding. But you don't want to count on the understanding um, and and good graces. You, you need to be prepared for that. And as this fades and people tend to forget how difficult it was to work during these times. I think you're absolutely right. If you've documented it in the moment and you can show that to DOJ later on, look, we had to do this because of um, the situation we were facing during the COVID crisis. I think that'll go a long way. As with anything, I'm sure you tell your clients this and, and, and make this point often, Tom, is documentation is always key. If you're going to make a change, if you're going to do something, if, if you're making a risk-based analysis or something like that, document those decisions so that you can have contemporaneous proof if an enforcement agency does come knocking. James, we had some continued news from Mexico. Uh, You guys have reported on this for uh, multiple years and certainly uh, over the past 12 months about perhaps an increase in enforcement in anti-corruption in Mexico. And we saw back in March that uh, there was an extradition request for a former PMEX official, I believe that either that extradition request was granted or that official agreed to be extradited. But uh, do you see uh, what significance, if any, I guess, I wanted to ask, do you see in Mexico's moving to extradite former PMEX officials back to Mexico to potentially stand trial? Right. This is a, a little bit along the theme that we started out with, talking about the um, 
uh, Isabel Dos Santos investigation in that we're in the early stages, but this really could blow up into a much larger investigation depending on what happens in Mexico. Um, you know, the current president of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, um, ran on an anti-corruption platform, and it was very popular for uh, for quite a while. But his popularity, according to polls, is starting to flag a bit. And so, in some ways, he's getting back to the basics of his campaign platform, which is to go um, after corruption again. And so, we've seen one of the one of the manifestations of that is this push on going after former Pemex officials for potential corruption and other mis- alleged misconduct during their time at Pemex. So this particular um, incident in March was that going back to February, the former chief executive of Pemex was arrested in Spain on Mexican charges. And as you have to do in this type of situation, he was arrested on probably a provisional arrest warrant. And then Mexico followed up with a formal extradition request in March and requested that Spain extradite, uh, his name is Lozoya, to stand trial on those charges, which are tax fraud and bribery related. Um, Now, one very interesting thing here is whether this is going to lead to an investigation of the former Mexican president, Enrique Peña Nieto. Um, Lozoya worked for him on a campaign and was Pemex CEO during the Nieto regime. And a poll that we report on here um, that was done in Mexico showed that a large majority of respondents polled in a national survey favored opening a corruption probe against um, against former President Peña Nieto. So, you know, if Lopez Obrador has flagging popularity, if a way to uh, maybe make his popularity go up back up is to go back to the basics of the anti-corruption platform, and he has a target like the former president and other very high-level officials at a big company like Pemex, that may be something that's very attractive. And and because so many international companies do business with Pemex, that could lead to a very large international corruption investigation as well. Obviously, we're in very early days of that, and it's not clear you know, has COVID affected this? Mexico has been a country that's been very hit, hit very hard by COVID. But if this does kind of follow the trajectory that we're seeing in the early days, this, like the Dos Santos investigation, could end up leading to another very large international anti-corruption investigation. Uh, and our last story from March, James, is the OECD expressed concern over Costa Rica's foreign bribery enforcement record. Um You've been involved, or you were involved with the OECD in doing some reports. And I was wondering, from your perspective, what does this mean when the OECD makes such an announcement? Sure. I always try to cover the OECD reports because I think they're such a great, um, just a wealth of information for people who are thinking about doing business in an OECD country and they want to know what the legal and economic framework is and including the the foreign bribery framework. I think they're a great resource. I was involved in the um, phase two review of Russia uh, and just really learned a tremendous amount and thought that the report we did was just ex- incredibly educational and, and useful. So I always try to, in many ways, promote these reports because I think they're an invaluable resource for practitioners, business people, uh, whoever's trying to do business in a particular OECD country. So in this one, the um, the OECD working 
group on bribery did their phase two evaluation of Costa Rica's implementation on the anti-bribery convention, and they released their report in March of 2020. Uh, you know, the, the, there are some very technical findings, but it's also very common overall findings. First, in the technical findings, uh, I found these very interesting this month because um, the OECD found that there were still some legal shortcomings in the foreign bribery regime in Costa Rica. The one that I found the most interesting was there's a defense in uh, Costa Rica that if the official has solicited the bribe, that's a defense. Now, if you're an FCPA practitioner, you've got to think about it for a minute. I mean, when what bribery situation does not involve an official soliciting a, a bribe? I suppose there are some where you could affirmatively offer a bribe, but that's very common that the official is going to solicit the bribe. And if that's a defense to a foreign bribery action, uh, that really does is an exception that swallows the rule and makes it very difficult <laughs> to pursue foreign bribery enforcement. So that was one of the things that, that the OECD working group said that um, Costa Rica had to close that gap and eliminate that defense. Um, I remember this very similar defense in Russia, actually, when we were doing that, the phase two um, review of Russia as well. So that's not that uncommon, but obviously it makes foreign bribery enforcement difficult. On a more macro level, one of the findings of the OECD was that Costa Rica is not devoting sufficient resources to foreign bribery enforcement. You'll see that in a lot of the OECD reports. Um, you know, the United States devotes a lot of resources to foreign bribery enforcement. Countries like the UK also do, um, but a lot of the OECD member countries do not. And you'll see that as a common criticism in phase two and phase three and now phase four reports is that OECD member countries need to tighten up their laws and then also um, spend more time, money, and effort on pursuing foreign bribery cases. And oftentimes they have a great effect. Um, you know, the, the um, countries that are being reviewed don't want to be criticized. Um, they want to be in compliance, I think, generally speaking, with the convention. And so you can see some really major changes between the phase two and a phase three report, either in legislative fixes or in um, increased foreign bribery enforcement. So we'll have to wait to see. The phase three report should come out in a couple of years. Um, and, but in the meantime, there's a good chance that Costa Rica will be working to fix some of these issues that the OECD working group highlighted. James, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for uh, this podcast. We're going to link to the March newsletter in the show notes. I wanted to thank you again for uh, taking the time to visit with me today, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Tom. Go Blue. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have any questions on this episode, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast and iTunes as it would help us increase our rankings and expanding our listener base for the oldest podcast in compliance. If you have any questions you'd like explored on this podcast, please send them to me as well, or you can leave them on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you'll join us again next week where we take up another issue in FCPA and compliance. Thanks again for listening.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.